Hi listeners, welcome to Season 5. We are in the process of revamping our show and we will be doing some crowdfunding to make the podcast more accessible and even more amazing. So before we forget, check the show notes to find out how you can help make that happen. Yeah, and as part of our revamping, renovation, Marie condoing, I don't know, whatever, whatever you want to call it, we're going back to our roots. The vision that grad student Courtney had for the podcast so, so long ago was to make it a resource that not only provides an overview of the historical and cultural contexts that shaped Victorian writing, but also took deep dives into particular examples. All focusing, of course, on lesser-known writers. And by lesser-known, in case you're new, we always mean today, uh, lesser-known to today's readers rather than to Victorian readers, because a lot of the authors we cover were pretty famous uh, by Victorian standards. So this year, we will be releasing a Victorian Timeline episode every other month, starting today, uh, to provide context for our more traditional bio episodes in alternating months. And then for those bio episodes, because we've all been more or less stuck at home for the past two years, we thought it would be a great time to use our bio episodes to explore the writers who shaped Victorian domestic spaces, in particular the authors of household manuals and cookbooks. So, without further ado, let's dive into Season 5 with our first Timeline episode, 1836 to 1850. This is Victorian Scribblers an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Dr. Eleanor Dunmill, an expert in 19th century literary and publishing history. So as we said before, this is the first of our bi-monthly Victorian timeline episodes where we swiftly cover 10-ish years of 19th century history in 10-ish minutes. Very much ish. This one will not be 10 minutes. And it also will not be 10-ish years. (laughs) We're kicking off the season and the series by chatting about the decade in which the Victorian period properly began. But since Queen Victoria took the throne in 1837, and some important literary stuff was in the works just before that. Um, We fudged it a bit more than we would typically cover to include the years 1836 to 1850. And because things changed radically over the course of Victoria's reign, there are a couple things we need to highlight in more depth before we dive in for and around the world. So the first of these is railways. In 1830, the world as soon-to-be Victorian people knew it changed forever with the installation of the Liverpool and Manchester Railway, which carried both passengers and freight. Life literally sped up with this new mode of travel, and even though the first line was limited, by 1870 there were about 13,500 miles of railway track in Britain. So I think it's important to keep in mind that the writers and readers of this period were dealing with a world that suddenly felt smaller and faster. Yeah, and the other thing to kind of like swerve hard (laughs) is literacy rates. So if we're talking about writers, we also need to think about readers. And according to Richard Altick, who wrote a classic handbook of the period, Victorian People and Ideas, a Companion for the Modern Reader of Victorian Literature, 
Quote, the national literacy rate for adults based on the ability to inscribe one's name in the marriage register rose from 67% male and 51% female in 1841 to approximately 97% for both sexes in 1900, end quote. Uh, but because a lot of people learned how to write or trace their names without ever learning how to read, these numbers are a bit misleading. Turning to surveys in London, Altic gets a little bit more granular. Quote, in 1833, in an artisan class district of London, 777 parents could read and 267 could not. In 1845, 75% of the children leaving 176 Midland schools after an average attendance of a year and a half were, for all practical purposes, illiterate, end quote. So it's not really until the country began to seriously address social reform that literacy improved at about mid-century. Um, so we get this uptick in the middle of Victoria's reign. Uh, in this chunk of our timeline, though, we can assume that most readers were in the upper middle classes or higher. Yeah, and then just to go through a few things in slightly less detail and give an overview of the period. In 1836, the stamp duty was reduced from four pence to one pence in order to take unstamped newspapers off the street while allowing legal newspapers wider circulation. I just wanted to add a note that said um, Bullwitton was involved in this, so I guess we have to give him some due sometimes. Hmm. Uh, in 1837, Queen Victoria took the throne. Lots was going on in 1839, so the Chartist Rebellion began in that year. The Royal Constabularies Act extended the 1829 Metropolitan Police Act and required counties to establish their own police forces. And the act was passed in the face of Chartist activity and in response to that. The Jamaica Act finalised the 1833 Abolition of Slavery Act, setting the remaining enslaved people and apprentices free in the British colonies. And the Custody of Infants Act, championed by a woman named Caroline Norton, permitted a mother to petition the courts for custody of her children up to the age of seven and for access in respect of older children. A lot also happened in 1840, so Victoria and Albert got married. The Grammar School Act made it legal to use school income for purposes other than teaching classical languages with the headmaster's approval. Samuel Morse invented the telegraph, and the penny post changed the way the mail worked. Before this date, recipients paid for any letters that were sent to them, even junk mail which was a thing. Um, but after the penny post was instituted, senders paid for mailing by buying and using stamps. And the most famous stamp of this period was called the Penny Black. In 1841, the periodical Punch was established. In 1842, the Copyright Bill updated the period of copyright. Every book published during an author's lifetime would remain under copyright for the remainder of the author's life and seven years after their death. If this copyright period was less than 42 years from first publication, then the copyright would persist for a full 42 years regardless of the date of the author's death. Works published after the author's death retained copyright for the same 42-year period. Also in 1842, Moody's Select Library opened. In 1843, William Wordsworth became the Poet Laureate, and Richard Hoe invented the rotary printing press. In 1845, the potato crop failed in Ireland. The Corn Laws were repealed. Uh, they'd been passed in 1815 to raise the price of wheat, leading to an economic depression. A concerted campaign for the repeal of the Corn Laws had been going on since 1838, and Sir Robert Peel pushed for the repeal. Uh, on his success, he was terminated as Prime Minister. 
Yeah, and to go back to that potato crop, from 1845 to 1849, the Great Famine in Ireland caused mass emigration and the deaths of over one million people. Mm-hmm. The British Parliament, with Robert Peel at the helm, was slow to react, greatly exacerbating the problem because racism and imperialism. In 1848, Queen's College for Women was founded. The Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood was founded. And there were revolutions across Europe. These culminated in, amongst other things, a move to constitutional monarchy in Denmark, the end of feudalism in Serbia, and a somewhat brief-lived independence from the Bourbons in Italy. 1850 was another jam-packed year, so the Factory Act of 1850, also known as the Compromise Bill, was passed. And while only addressing textile factories that set an important precedent for workers' rights, so women and children between the ages of 13 and 18, were to work in factories only between the hours of 6am and 6pm, or 7am and 7pm. But there was a downside. Working hours were raised from 10 to 10 and a half hours per day. Dickens's Household Words was founded in 1850. A telegraph line was laid under the English Channel, enabling rapid communication with the continent. And Tennyson becomes the Poet Laureate. So a lot of big changes, a lot of uh, changes to media and communication, just speeding the world up alongside of railroads um, as literacy rates slowly began to increase. Uh, So that's your overview. And now let's talk about some of the major writers, genres, and publications that uh, sort of mark this period in early Victorian literature. So the Newgate novel is one of the most important genres of this period. It's also known as the rogue novel, and it came into being during the reform of English criminal law in the 1830s. These novels were notable for featuring criminals as sympathetic protagonists or major characters, and they were avidly read and nervously discussed as being potentially morally corrupting because they, quote, romanticized criminals. So, you know, you can imagine them as the violent video games of the 1800s. And some of the more notable examples of this genre include W.H. Ainsworth's Jack Shepard in 1839, and Dickens' Oliver Twist in 1837, and Barnaby Rudge in 1841. The genre technically existed well before the Victorian period if you count publications like Daniel Defoe's Mall Flanders in 1722, which is one of my favorite <laughs> um, Newgate novels. The genre went out of fashion in the 1840s, I mean, sort of, but its influence can be seen throughout the century in novels like Bleak House and Great Expectations, which feature sort of uh, criminals with hearts of gold. (laughs) The other big genre that you should know about in this period is the social problem novel, which is also called a condition of England novel, or the condition of England novel. They're defined by their focus on, quote, the situation of workers during the Industrial Revolution, end quote, as Joseph Kestern notes in Victorian Britain and Encyclopedia. These novels were written with at least two primary goals, the first being to inform the well-to-do about the abuses of the factory system, and the second being to promote legislative reform. Some of the most notable examples of the period include Benjamin Disraeli Sybil in 1845, Francis Milton Trollope's Michael Armstrong, The Factory Boy in 1840, and Jesse Phillips in 1844, Charlotte Bronte's Shirley in 1849, Charles Kingsley's Yeast in 1848, and Alton Locke in 1850, Elizabeth Gaskell's Mary Barton in 1848, 
and North and South in 1855, and George Eliot's Felix Holt, The Radical, in 1866. I personally kind of lump George Eliot's Silas Marner mm-hmm. uh, in. It was published in 1861. I think it's a sort of sister novel to the genre, sort of exploring life after after factory work, I don't know, adjacent to. Um, and as with the Newgate novels, social problem novels predate the Victorian period. Many of the more notable earlier examples were written by women. The Rioters, uh, Harriet Martineau's The Rioters in 1827, and The Turnout in 1828, and A Manchester Strike in 1832 are good examples. And I keep bringing up kind of sister novels. Um, Mary Wollstonecraft's 1798 Mariah or The Wrongs of Woman feels like a kindred spirit to the genre to me as well, Um, even though it's less about factory work and more just about the social problem of being a woman. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it's also worth noting that almost all of the Bronte's works were published during this time period, with the exception of Charlotte's Villette, in 1853, and The Professor, which was published posthumously in 1857. Yeah, and the other literary innovation that I think we need to talk about, well, this is part of the reason we pushed the timeline back to 1836, the year before Victoria took the throne. Because in my opinion, we can't talk about Victorian publishing and not talk about Dickens's first novel, The Pickwick Papers. Now, regular listeners know how low they am to put Dickens on a pedestal. Um, I always feel like I need to give a disclaimer that I do like Dickens, but I just think, A, I have looked too much into his personal life, and B, um, yeah, there's value there, but um, not to the expense of every other Victorian writer. Anyway, this is a side rant because this is actually important for a few reasons. So it was an early example of both illustrated fiction and serial fiction. Um, I want to give a word of warning if you want to look this novel up. Just be aware that the story of the novel's production features a real-life suicide quite prominently. So just something to know going in if you're going to look into this. But the Pickwick Papers has been credited with popularising both illustrations and fiction and the serial mode of production. It was also a bona fide publishing phenomenon. Sometimes it's called the first publishing phenomenon. There were unofficial sequels bootleg copies, adaptations, and some uh, slightly less than legitimate merch. Yeah, I will say like the the 18th century people are probably going to be like, no, it's Lawrence, Lawrence Sturd, who's the person who's the first literary breakaway. Um, so yeah, there's always quibbles, right? <laughs> yeah, there always are. And like I should mention, this is far from the first thing to be published serially. Mm-hmm. So there are a couple of really important things that are gained from serial publication. First, a part issue is cheaper than a book, um, and it's cheaper to spend two pence a week on a magazine than it is to spend, you know, a shilling all in one go. So coupled with the expanding literacy rates that Courtney mentioned earlier, that meant the group of potential readers grows. Mm-hmm. Second, Dickens's approach to writing Pickwick was different from the earlier part-published books that I kind of alluded to. The format had existed before Pickwick, but they were often already published in volume form and then they'd be kind of cut up into shorter parts for republication, so you would already have been able to buy it as a book. And this was just the same story in a different format, whereas Dickens wrote Pickwick as it was being published, and that meant he was able to respond to readers' and reviewers' opinions. 
Also, the actual term cliffhanger is most likely to have been coined around 1873 in response to Thomas Hardy, leaving one of his characters clinging for dear life to the side of a cliff in a pair of blue eyes. The idea of leaving characters in peril and readers desperate to find out whether they'll survive was around much earlier. A notable non-Pickwick example is The Fate of Little Nell in The Old Curiosity Shop, published in 1841. And this kind of became part of the course with serialised fiction. So it's the same thing as you see in soap operas or TV shows where you see the characters are left in danger at the end of the show. It's the same kind of concept. Many of the century's most well-known books were published in serial form or part issue. Um, It kind of would be easier to say which weren't. And the numbers grew across the period. So in 1837, there were 10 serials published. And in 1888, at the peak of the format, there were 114 serial novels. So instead of notable novels, I thought I'd share some notable periodicals. First, we've already mentioned Household Words and Dickens's other periodical all the year round. There's also Blackwood's Edinburgh Magazine, the Westminster Review, the Fortnightly Review, Temple Bar, and the Graphic. Um, There are literally hundreds, so it was really difficult to pare it down to a list of like six. If you want to learn more about the growth of serials throughout the Victorian period, I strongly encourage you to check out Troy Bassett's at the Circulating Library, which is just an invaluable source of information. And I will include a link to the stats on serials in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. It's so great. I think we've probably referenced it for every season of... <laughs> probably every episode. If we, yeah. if we could, we would. Yeah. So while we're making recommendations, let's uh, let's recommend books from this more than a decade. Um, so like Eleanor, I don't recommend Dickens that often, not because I don't love Dickens' work, but because I think there are lots of other writers who don't get a fair shake. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to make an exception to that rule today, though, because if you haven't, I really think you should read Oliver Twist. It's a great example of the Newgate novel at the height of its form, and it pairs nicely with Bleak House, which is my all-time favorite Dickens novel, and which I will probably therefore exhort you to read later. (laughs) And I know a lot of people have either read or watched the miniseries of North and South. I just want to say, if you enjoyed that, I cannot recommend Mary Barton highly enough. It's got many of the same themes, but in my opinion, it has more teeth. And to do a little bit of shameless self-promo, if you are interested in the factory acts and industrial novels, I wrote an entry about them and their influence on literature for the Palgrave Encyclopedia of Victorian Women's Writing. That is behind a paywall. If you don't have institutional access, send me a DM on Twitter and I just might be able to help you out. So I think that's it for our first Timeline episode. Um, We're going to leave you with a sneak preview of our February scribbler. Um... So this scribbler is responsible for the first English recipes for Brussels sprouts and spaghetti. I was going to say, and if, like both of us, you've been making bread during quarantine, you might be interested to hear she wrote a history of bread making in England. Ooh. Okay. So um, we are going to leave you with those intriguing tidbits. Um, Stick around to the end of the podcast for some promo from a podcast by uh, one of our longtime listeners, Art Kilmer, uh, the Bookshelf Odyssey podcast. We highly recommend that you check it out. 
Victorian Scribblers is researched, written, and produced by me, Courtney Floyd. And me, Eleanor Dunbill. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review or comment on social media. It's nice to know we aren't podcasting into the void. And if you're interested in helping support our work, you can contribute via our Ko-fi page. And that's at ko-fi.com slash victorianscribblers. Or you can make a recurring tip via our Pinecast tip jar to get access to private content right here in your podcatcher. All it takes is $1 a month to get access to that content. The links are in the show notes. Are you a bookaholic on the road to recovery? Or are you on the road to the bookstore? Hello and welcome to the Bookshelf Odyssey podcast. Come along with me as I explore my bookshelves, read you stories, talk to authors and people in the bookish community as we search for your next great read. From Victorian classics to the cozy mystery, from action adventures to nonfiction, I've got you covered. So grab your favorite book, a cup of tea, and settle in for the greatest stories ever written. Episodes will be heard every week on all major podcasting platforms, with video versions available on our YouTube channel, including some bonus content. Or you can go to bookshelfodyssey.com and start your adventure there. I'll see you soon. So until then, happy reading.